0: So will you please uh, take your Bible at this time and meet me in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. And again, if you're in need of a Bible, there are some provided for you in the seats, underneath the seats in front of you. This week I found myself uh, reflecting... On the things and people that have, um, that have really served to help bring me to where I am today. I reviewed the years gone by, and, and what became very clear to me is that nothing has shaped my life and my faith more than my family. I came to faith in Jesus as a 16-year-old high school junior, my junior year. And I've been walking with Jesus for over 30 years. I've been part of three wonderful churches, three wonderful churches from different uh, denominational backgrounds, uh, churches that have served me incredibly well, churches in which I have been privileged to serve. I've had numerous uh, mentors, people I've looked up to, uh, men and women who've modeled the Christian faith for me very faithfully. I've faced uh, some challenging situations in, in life and in ministry, and, um, and even had you know bouts of what we might call suffering, times of suffering. But as formative as these events have been, and as many people I've been privileged to know and learn from, nothing has shaped my life and faith more than my family. From my parents and sister, to my wife and children... God has used the everyday experiences, the everyday interactions with the, this relatively small group of people in ways that nothing else compares. I imagine that, that, that many, or maybe even most of you, could say the same thing. And so in continuation of our summer series this morning, we come to Ephesians chapters 5 and 6 to explore... Some of what the Bible says about family and parenting. And here we learn that uh, what many of us already know by experience, that spiritual formation typically begins in the home. So let's read this together. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to begin in chapter 5, verse 22. And we're going to read through chapter 6, verse 4. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, we want to thank you for the time we have to come before you and learn from your word. I want to pray for every person here in the room and every family that's represented here in the room and I would ask specifically, God, that you, would, um, that, you would, that you would see fit and be well pleased to pour out fresh, a fresh supply of grace upon our homes this morning and even upon our hearts. We thank you, God, that even as we awoke this morning, we were greeted with a fresh supply of mercy, new and tender mercies that you reserve and set aside for us day after day after day. And so we come to you now knowing that we are frail and feeble and in many ways we have fallen far short of your perfect will for our lives and even for our families. And so we come to you, Lord, humbly. We come to you um, uh, thankfully, Uh, We come to you with uh, just a deep sense of gratitude and appreciation for the many ways in which you have used our families to form and transform us time and time again over the years. So speak to us now, we pray, and give us encouragement, the encouragement we need to bring your will and your ways into our homes. For we ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. Spiritual formation typically begins in the home. What I mean by that is the home is the working lab in which we are continually refined and shaped into Christ-likeness. So how can we contribute to a healthy home? That's the question I want to try to answer from this passage this morning. Uh, How can we contribute to a healthy home. And from this passage, we learn at least three ways. First, we must embrace God's design for husbands and wives in the marriage relationship. Second, we must embrace God's design for the parent-child relationship. And then third, we must embrace our need of God whose grace is more than able. First, building healthy families begins when husbands and wives apply themselves to their God given roles in marriage. Now, we all bring certain expectations into marriage. Many husbands expect some form of Wonder Woman, a wife who kicks butt and looks good doing so, with nary a hair out of place. Many wives expect some form of Superman, a a husband who's strong enough to save the world, yet sensitive and mild-mannered enough to be in touch with his emotions. Many times, these expectations go unspoken. They're unspoken expectations. And therefore, they go unmet. And when they go unmet, we can grow bitter over time, which leads to a sense of entitlement, as if our spouse now owes us something. And once this occurs, the marriage becomes, or it can become, a very frustrating exercise in what we can get instead of what we can give. In this scenario, both the husband and the wife entrench themselves on either side of a relational tug of war. And I've seen this many, many times in many couples, including many friends and loved ones for whom I care deeply, And sadly, as this tug-of-war ensues, it it usually ends in a relational break of some sort. The rope snaps. And that, that break can range from just this deep woundedness that now one or both spouse is left to live with, or a sense of separation, emotional separation, physical separation, uh, sometimes even phys- uh, uh, you know separate living situations uh, and and of course divorce, sadly. What we need then is to reset the expectation, or better yet, I think to have God set them for us, set our expectations for us, which is what we find in Ephesians chapter five verses twenty two Through 33, a passage that instructs both wives and husbands by pointing them to Jesus. I want to begin with the husbands in the room. Husbands, your role in the marriage, according to this passage, is to play the part of Christ. Now, very important that you understand this does not mean that you are Christ, you aren't. Your wife does not need that from you. Uh, She doesn't need you lording over her in that way. Presumably, she already has Jesus for her own. Instead, you are to emulate Jesus in how you live and love your wife, how you live with and love your wife, or as I like to put it, you are to love like Christ. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now to do this, obviously, you must first love Christ and abide in Christ and be transformed by Christ. And as you are transformed by Jesus, you can then draw upon uh, the vast reservoir of his love and pour that love out upon your wife. But what does that look like? What does that look like in practical terms, this idea of pouring that love out upon your wife? I think if we read a little further down, verses 28 and 29, uh, provide some answers. They say, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, and here it is, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. And these two words, nourish and cherish, are there to help explain how the husband is to love his wife. First, he must nourish her. The word means to develop, to nurture, to lift up. It's the same word used Uh, We'll come to this later. It's the same word used in the beginning of chapter 6 when fathers are told uh, not to provoke their children, but to bring them up in the Lord, to nourish them. So this word nourish carries a sense of dignifying purpose and care and personal attention. So then a husband transformed by Christ will learn his wife and seek to understand her heart and the subtleties of her soul. her her moods, her joys, her sorrows, her fears, her insecurities, her gnawing guilt, and above all, her deepest needs. And because He wants so much, He wants to see those needs met, He'll do whatever it takes to nourish her, even as Jesus nourishes us. The word cherish goes even deeper emotionally because the word means to comfort, to warm, to value, uh, and to soften. It's the picture of like to soften with, with heat, with warmth. Paul uses this word in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 where he says, uh, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of or cherishing her own children. So when a woman is married to a Christ-like man who cherishes her like this, she feels valued by her husband. She feels held dear above all others, second only to Christ. Her husband doesn't point out all of her faults or selfishly compare her with others or send messages that convey that she never measures up. She's always falling just short. That's not loving like Christ. Instead, this husband delights in her Prizes her, values her, cherishes her, and empties himself for her sake, even as, as Jesus emptied himself for ours. Therefore, husbands, nourishing and cherishing your wife also involves taking the initiative in the relationship. Jesus didn't wait for us to be good enough or to earn our way into His good graces. Rather, He came to us with grace as undeserving as we are, so a husband transformed by Christ will proactively address his wife's needs even if he feels he's been wronged or hurt. Because after all, how many times have we wronged Jesus and grieved his heart only to be met with forgiveness and love? So, to all the husbands in the room, myself included, we must love. Our wives, like Christ loves them, like Christ loves the church. And now to the wives. Ephesians 5 also says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. I know for some, the idea of submission in this way carries negative connotations. But godly submission, I would say, is not negative at all. As I've talked with my wife about this over the years, she believes that godly submission is a beautiful thing, Because it is in fact from God. Both man and woman, husband and wife, are created equally in God's image and heirs together of eternal life. But rather than husband and wife struggling for dominance, which is often the case in in many marriages, God has provided a much better way. God has provided order in the home, even as there is order uh, in the Godhead itself as the Son defers to the Father and the Spirit defers to the Son. Therefore, godly submission is strength. It is strength from God. It is strength in God. Trust me. If you don't already know this, my wife is a strong and capable woman. She is a determined woman. She is a a fierce and fiercely devoted woman. She is a no-fear, jump-in-with-both-feet type of woman, as many women are, She is an equal partner in the marriage. In fact, uh, she she brings God-given gifts to be used in the marriage. She has a valued voice in our marriage. In fact, I'm amazed at how God's voice often sounds like hers. God has, many times, God has spoken to me through my wife. So husbands, please hear this. Uh, don't ever assume that headship means better than or more qualified. In fact, Ephesians 5.21, if we just skip up one verse, calls for submission on the part of us all. And God desires the wife to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. And so how does the church submit to Christ? Not begrudgingly, right? Not begrudgingly, but in love. Because the church loves Christ. The church knows that Jesus loves her. The church, uh, uh, the church knows that Jesus gave His all for her. Knows that, 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 that Jesus always wants what's, what's ultimately best for her. So secure is the church in Christ's love that it happily submits to His lead. After all, were we to take a poll, and husbands, I won't do that to you today, but were we to take a poll, which of the wives in the room, if loved by their husbands the way that Christ loves the church, wouldn't gladly submit to that kind of leadership and selfless care? It's not that husbands always get it right. They don't. We don't. Wives, you know, you know this very well, your husbands are not perfect. They're flawed, they are finite, they are sinners who need Jesus as much as anyone else. And yet the wife is called to trust her husband, even as she trusts the Lord, to pray for her husband, even as she prays to the Lord, to love her husband in this way, even as she loves the Lord. And so, as the husband is to love like Christ, the wife is to love like Christ's church. So then, building a healthy home means applying yourself, either as a husband or as a wife, to God's design for the marriage relationship. It also means applying yourself to what God desires for the parent-child relationship. Ephesians 6, in fact, begins by speaking directly to children. So, to the children in the room, the Bible says, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's just the right thing to do. It's good for your parents, it's good for you. It's good for the health of the family. It's just the right thing to do. Now, of course, this assumes that parents are parenting in a godly manner, which is all the more reason for obedience because it conforms to what God deems best. And then Paul quotes from the Ten Commandments as a way of motivating this kind of behavior by connecting obedience to parents... To a life of blessing. Godly parents are a blessing from God, and He doesn't want our kids to, to miss all that comes uh, that comes with that. All that comes with that blessing, namely the joy of living in a home where God and His promises are recognized and received. And then to parents, specifically fathers, because fathers, again, they bear the responsibility before God to set the tone. God says, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so there are two pieces of instruction here, uh, one to not do and one to do. Don't provoke, don't do this, do this. First, we are are not to provoke our children to anger, or as it reads in the NIV, do not exasperate your children. Uh, I take this to mean that don't expect more from them than what is reasonable. Be understanding of them. Be understanding of their life stage. Be understanding of what they're capable of. Understand their limitations, because to demand more than they're capable of is exasperating to them. And it can easily cause them to grow angry with distrust. Parents, I think this is good for us to hear because it seems that some parents expect perfection from their children. Or we expect to have, even if we don't say that, we want to give the appearance of having perfect children. Of being the perfect family. Why do this to our kids? Why put this burden on them that we ourselves cannot carry? In fact, I think maybe the the, the quickest way to exasperate or provoke your child is to talk the talk without walking the walk. To expect something from them that you're not delivering yourself. Why weigh them down with expectations that, that we aren't willing to carry ourselves? Rather than weigh them down, we're to bring them up, it says. We're to bring them up. And to do this well, it's helpful, to, I think, to know the dynamics of the uh, of the relationship as the child grows from one life stage to the next. Now, as you know, there are just all sorts of parenting resources available these days. I mean, you can turn anywhere and everywhere and find some kind of parenting resource, some of them from a biblical perspective, uh, and many of them have been very helpful to Sally and I over the years. But, but one that I've just found particularly helpful is more of a big picture, bird's eye approach that, uh, that I first heard from Focus on the Family and that they refer to as the four phases of parenthood. The four phases of parenthood. Phase one is the commander phase. This applies to the early years of the child's life, from infancy to toddler maybe, uh, where they are entirely dependent. They are just entirely dependent on the parent and the parent's ability to make good decisions for them. In this stage, parents provide structure and they determine, they command all that takes place within that structure. Phase two is the coach phase. As the child grows, the goal, of course, is to help them make good decisions for themselves. So parents will introduce tasks to the child, cleaning your room, picking up your toys, dressing yourself, and so on. And then they'll allow the child to experience the result, good and bad, of either following this instruction or not. The parent still sets the agenda, but now process is beginning to process the why behind the what, right? I mean, how many of us have had our kids say, we give an instruction and they say, why? And what is our typical answer? Because I said so. Oh, I used to hate that. That's not helping me to process so that the decision can become mine. And yet I still say it to my kids. When in fact what I want to do is I want to, there are these moments I want to, like in the big picture, I want to help them process on their own so they can draw these conclusions themselves. I want, them to prob- I want them to encounter some problems, and I want to help them problem-solve. And this stage typically ranges from toddler to the preteen years. So it's just a wide... Phase three is the counselor phase. Here the child enters their teenage years. They begin to navigate. As they enter their teenage years, they begin to navigate other influences that affect their lives. Some good, some not. So the parent must help them process the information in a way that invites God's truth into the discussion while still allowing them some room to draw some conclusions on their own. This is where they begin to take ownership of their faith. And because so much is going on in their lives at that time, physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually, there will be, not if, there will be heartache and failure. There will be. There will be heartache and failure, but the parent is there to help them, help navigate them through it. And finally, phase four is the consultant phase. In this stage, the child has entered adulthood <clears throat> Which means that parents must must learn. They must learn to let go. Not entirely, not entirely, because you never stop being a parent. And sometimes somehow our, we let go and our kids come back. <laughs> but children in this stage are now making decisions for themselves. <clears throat> They're charting a course for their lives. And what's really, really, really hard as I've talked to parents in this stage is that sometimes they will make decisions and chart courses that may not be the decisions or courses that you would make or chart for them. And yet we are there for them nonetheless. We are there to consult with them when they need advice, to provide instruction when they need help, to offer encouragement as they encounter the many realities of life as an adult. I cannot tell you how, what a gift my mom and dad have been for me and Sally both for me and Sally both, what a gift they've been as we've been able to come back to them as adults and say, what do you think about this? Obviously, these phases aren't scientific. They aren't set in these predetermined boxes. They're very fluid. They're overlapping, and different children will require different levels of commanding and coaching and counseling, and consulting as they move from phase to phase. For me and Sal, our kids, uh, just this last week, began another year of school. And so let me, let me, just, let me just paint a picture for you. We have, we have our youngest. Our youngest started TK. She's four years old. We have two in elementary school. Uh, eight and eleven, we have one in high school, fifteen, and our our eldest daughter, uh, in less than two weeks, we will be moving her out of the home and into her college dorm. So for us, in our home, parenting means constantly shifting from one phase to another back and forth commanding consulting coaching counseling commanding again consulting and you just there are times where you just want to disappear but it's all good and it's this exercise of keeping the short and long-term goals in view at all times. It's like my, um, my contact lenses. So this year, my optometrist tried something different. And he said, we're gonna, in your left eye, we're going to put a lens in there for up close. And in your right eye, we're going to put a lens in there for far away. And your brain's going to figure it out. And he's right. My brain has figured it out and so I can read up close and I can read far away, whereas before I couldn't. And I think parenting is like that. I think parenting is always keeping an eye on the here and now while, while having an eye to what's down the road. And our, our, our brains, hopefully, will figure it out. It'll just make sense of it all. And as challenging as it is, and it is, it is challenging, and as much, uh, as, it, as much as it brings out our own fears and doubts, it's also full of joy and laughter and hope and, and purpose beyond measure as we strive to bring them up in the Lord. Verse 4 says, chapter 6, verse 4 says, uh, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And, and the key phrase here, if I may, is um, the discipline and instruction is important. We'll we'll touch on that in a little bit, but I really think the key phrase here is of the Lord. Like It doesn't say just bring them up in in discipline and instruction. Uh, Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, as children are to obey their parents, parents are to obey the Lord. And in the end, in the end, it's not what we will for our children. It's about entrusting them to the will of God. So, as in marriage, uh, ill-informed expectations for our children can likewise get the best of us when it comes to parenting. Now, I have so many examples of this from my own parenting mishaps that I can't even remember all of them. Um, I, I mean, I have, um, let's just say, I have gone to my kids from, from my four-year-old to my 18-year-old. I have gone from, to my kids in contrition and repentance, uh, seeking uh, forgiveness and, and a restored relationship uh, more times than, than I, I even remember I would probably even care to admit. I do that for two reasons. One is because I'm wrong in those instances and, and, uh, and there's been a break in the relationship that I caused. And I do it secondly because I want to model for them that, that that's good, that it's good that we recognize our wrongs and that we, um, that we come clean with them before God and others. So I have so many mishaps that I can draw on this idea of of uh, ill-informed expectations, but some of my most famous, or I should say infamous, are my, what's kind of become known as my Disneyland meltdowns. (laughs) Some of you know this because we've talked about this, but we don't go to Disneyland often, thankfully. Uh, So when we do, it's kind of a big deal, and yet, the I'm not kidding here, like the last three times... We've gone to Disneyland. I have gone completely off the rails within the first hour. Uh, And it usually goes something like this. You know, we leave the hotel and everyone's brimming with excitement and anticipation. We park and we make our way through the front gate. We're hopping and jumping and, and bounding along the way. And of course, of course, right, we have to stop and we have to take our family photo in front of the flower Mickey Right, and then we, we ooh and we awe our way down Main Street, uh, and as we come to Sleeping Beauty's Castle, the first sign of trouble uh, kind of begins to surface. Which way do we go? Like, do we go left into uh, to Frontierland and Adventureland? Do we go right into Tomorrowland? Or do we go straight through Sleeping Beauty's castle into uh, Fantasyland? And then it becomes about which ride to ride. Which fast pass to collect. Which store to shop. Everybody has an opinion, sometimes very strong opinions. Things are said, feelings get hurt, patience running thin, and then just... I mean, all this time I'm trying like mad to keep it all together, but I can't take it anymore. It's like, don't they know this is the happiest place on earth? (laughs) Don't they know how much this costs us? How expensive this is? They better darn well start enjoying themselves or else. And so I tried to uh, gather and compose myself, but it's too late. I mean, it's too late. The kids are crying. My wife at this point, she's burning a hole through my skull with her laser beam eyes. And so what do I do now? Well, it's off to the Golden Horseshoe for some reconciliatory ice cream because everyone knows that $12 ice cream cones should make you happy. Now, you should know that uh, after a seven-year hiatus, we're going back this Thanksgiving. And I'm already praying my way through it. But the point... The point is that our parental expectations that our kids must always think as we think or behave as we would want them to behave, those expectations are destined to let us down. Instead, wherever we are, And in whatever we do, we must learn to surrender our will for our kids to God's will for their lives. Obviously, there's some overlapping to that. But I think if we're honest, parents, there are times when we will certain things for our kids and we haven't even consulted God about it. We need to ask... Parents, parents, we need to ask, why did God give me these kids? They are not given to fulfill or complete you. They are not given to correct your past mistakes or the mistakes of your parents. They are not given to arrange like trophies on your mantle. They were given by God to advance His purposes in the world. Bringing our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord means teaching them who they are in God's eyes. That God is God. God is God. We, don't, we, we are accountable to, to someone and that someone is God. God loves them, and and He loves them so much that He gave His only Son, Jesus, to rescue them from the the sins, their sins, that separate them from God. It means encouraging them to see their need of Jesus, uh, to help them confess their sins and place their trust in Jesus who bore sin's penalty on the cross in their place. It means reminding them that Jesus is not one among many, but the only way. He is the only way by which we are saved and restored to God. And it means helping them to live, to live out the life of faith by faith. But as most parents already know, so much of this is out of our control. So much of our kids' lives is out of our control. So in the end, we we just have to have this spirit of surrender to the Lord. Surrendering our kids to the Lord, which means recognizing our own need of grace. Building a healthy home, therefore requires that you embrace your need of God. Husbands, you cannot love your wife like Christ loved the church, without the Lord. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't. Wives, similarly, you cannot love your husbands like the church loves Christ, without the Lord. Leaning upon God for strength. Calling upon God for help. Parents, you cannot bring your children up in the Lord or even attempt to unless you have first placed your trust in Him. This applies whether your marriage is strong or struggling. And whether your children are walking with God or not. Because if the marriage is strong and your kids walk with God, praise God for that, but be careful Please be careful to not think more highly of yourself than you ought because as you well know, it all owes to God's grace. And if your marriage is struggling or your kids aren't in step with God, don't give up. And be careful to not look to your spouse or your kids for something they cannot provide. Namely, your identity. Your spouse and your children were never intended to give you your identity. Only Jesus can truly do that. So look instead to God. Welcome Jesus into your life time and time again. Walk in step with Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned earlier, nothing has shaped my life and faith more than my family. Because spiritual formation typically begins in the home. The home is a working lab by which we grow up into all that God has for us. So embrace Embrace God's design for husbands and wives in the marriage relationship. Embrace God's design for the parent-child relationship. And because you cannot do this on your own, nor are you expected to, please, please, please embrace your need of God whose grace is more than able. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, and I'll leave you with this today with confidence would you draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. Amen. God, we want to thank you, and I would just pray that prayer over all of us, over the husbands in the room, over the wives in the room, over the parents in the room, over the children in the room. I pray that you would help all of us to draw near with confidence to your throne of grace and receive mercy from you today that helps us even now in our times of need. And God, would you bring renewed joy and hope and purpose into each of our homes that we might reflect Christ's likeness uh, to one another and even to our communities and to the world at large. We ask you to be gracious to us in this way. We know we, it, this, this pleases you, and so we know you've, you've, you've heard us and you, you, you're inclined to respond. Thank you bless us now. In the name of Jesus, amen.